0: Alrighty, good morning church family, my name is Ross and what a joy and a privilege it is to be with you here this morning, I don't take it lightly um, and I'm very humbled by every opportunity that I get to share God's word uh, with you. Today we begin our 14 week study in the ancient book of Nehemiah, we've been working on it for about a year and so I'm very excited that we finally get to dive into it together and so please if you would turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 1, why would we do this? Uh, Why would we study an ancient narrative 2,500 years old from a context so far removed from our own historically and, and culturally and sociologically and geographically? Why would we do this? Well, one of our core convictions at the Austin Stone is that we are ruled by God's word. We don't live alongside it. We submit ourselves to it. We're ruled by it. This means that we believe that the scriptures, the ancient scriptures, right, are true, and that they're still powerful and useful for us today. And so we hold them as high and authoritative over our lives, and we submit ourselves to them. When we disagree with them, we are wrong, right? It just takes us a while in order to to come to terms with that in humility and accepting their truth. So that is why we would spend 14 weeks together uh, studying a story from 2,500 years ago. I'm very excited for what we might learn together. Um, If you want to get even more out of it, right? This is a punt, but not a commercial punt, all right? So we're selling these at cost. No one's getting wealthy off of this, certainly not me. Um, and so I would like an audit um, afterwards, but these are being sold at cost. No one's going on the New York Times bestseller list. But this is a lot of work um, that helps you really make the most of the next 14 weeks. And so you can pick one up um, in the foyer at your congregations on the way out, and this will be an opportunity for you to um, have some family devotionals, some group time together, or some personal study of the word that will actually allow you to be prepared for every sermon, so you can test our work um, and give us a grade, which I know that you do anyway. But this way, this time, you can do it in an informed manner, um, which is incredibly liberating. So, once you pick one of those up, my friend Jake Riddle has spent uh, almost countless hours of work uh, on that, and we're very grateful uh, to him and to the Austin Stone Institute team for putting that together. I love that one of the main ways that God reveals who He is and how he likes to work, right? So his character and his, and his activity, how he likes to work with a group of people is through the recording of story. That God leaves stories for us, like breadcrumbs that we can pick up and go like, oh, this is what he is like. Oh, this is what he did in and amongst this group of people. And this is what this group of people were like. And think about it, God could have revealed himself in any way right? And he does in a multitude of ways, but he could have simply issued decrees and written them in the sky for us to observe every morning. He could have arranged the stars so that they just wrote in the sky, right? I am God. You must obey me. Don't be silly, right? I love you. And every day we would stand up and just go like, oh man, I nearly forgot. Brilliant. There it is. But that's not primarily how he reveals Himself to us. One of the ways that he reveals himself to us over and over and over again is that he gets involved in the stories of real people. People like us, people with complex narratives that don't always go exactly the way they should go, people with busy lives people with many distractions, people with important contexts of the the constructs of culture and time and space, people with a lived history. And God interjects Himself into that history, which is so kind, friends, because this is how we live and experience life and reality, as an ongoing story. Your life is an on unfolding an ongoing story. It's not just a random collection of abstract principles, right? And so when your name is called and, and you cross that celestial shore, what we'll we do? We'll tell stories of your life. I remember when they did this, and remember that really difficult period, and remember how God came through in that instance. It's how we experience the world. And what we're going to look at over the next 14 weeks is narrative history told in story form with actual people in actual places encountering an actual God. And so friends, it's important for us as we jump into this true recorded story of God's work amongst the people that we must take the time to remember that this story exists as part of a bigger story. And we do that by looking back and by looking forward from it, connecting it to a timeline in which we still live, a timeline of God's work in the world. Now I can tell already by your stunned expressions that you're like, it's too early for narrative redemptive history. Um, Ross, I just wanted you to tell me that God loves me and send me on my way. We'll get to it, right? Um, Via a 35 minute detour. But it's very important for us to understand that we exist in God's narrative history and that Nehemiah existed at a time in God's narrative history. And if we can look backward in time, And forward in time, that helps us to fully understand where we are in the story. As I was preparing for this over the last few weeks, I was reminded of one of my favorite films that have ever been made, one of the great storytelling sequences that I have ever experienced um, and enjoyed. It's a movie that was released in 2000, right? It's called Memento, um, and it was very important in putting the director, Christopher Nolan, um, on the map as a director. Now, don't judge my choice. I can feel it already, right? Especially down here in the front, I've got some Gen Zers going, boo, right? Uh, uh, Don't judge my choice, right? It is rated R. I'm not suggesting you all go download it uh, this afternoon, Uh, Um, what I am saying is that it was very important to me at the time, but it was the year 2000, right? So lots of things were important to me in the year 2000 that I wouldn't hold to today. I had frosted tips. They were very important to me. um, And I thought they were working, right? I was wrong. I thought Linkin Park was one of the most important bands in history in the year 2000. Again, completely incorrect, right? Okay, but I was enjoying it at the time. And when I saw Memento, it completely blew my mind. If you haven't seen it, it is called, I read a, a review this last week, a movie for the intelligence. So you can decide off of that if it's for you or not, um, and I won't dictate that. The reason it's a movie for the intelligent is it's time spliced in its narrative storytelling. So the story starts at the end, and then it jumps to the beginning, and gradually through sequences that are alternating between black and white and full color, it moves its way towards the middle, which says is the actual point of the story, and then it kinda makes sense kind of, right, is the emphasis, because it was Gen X's making movies, so we didn't want anything to resolve or anything to be happy, we wanted people to just be sad and then go listen to grunge um, and question all of their life decisions while they peroxide at the ends of their hair, right? Um, And so I loved this movie. Why did I love it? Well, in part, it's how we actually read Old Testament historical narrative, right? And not just because of the rated R part, right? But Old Testament narrative, if you haven't noticed, has a lot of that in it too but the stories on their own, if we just jump into Nehemiah chapter one, right? on its own, they're interesting. They're even instructive. You could get something out of Nehemiah chapter one, first four verses, not knowing any of the redemptive history, not knowing any of what came before or what came after. You could look at it and you could go, oh, i learned something from that. But when you piece them together, forwards, looking at what they pointed to in Christ, and backwards, looking at the people that God had been forming over millennium, right? Uh, And what went before in redemptive history and prophetic promise. Then you start to see the masterpiece of a brilliant director who's telling a story for our instruction. And he knows the whole story and he holds it all together, inviting us bit by bit into the genius of his work. And so today we're not just looking at an ancient story, I'm inviting you into the story of God. And I'm asking you to place yourself in this great ongoing redemptive history and to look back and to see what he has done and to look forward and look at the glory that awaits us. And as a result, to feel a steadiness under your feet, God is working in the stories of our lives as he always has in our people. All right, let's get to work. Nehemiah oh man, this is gonna be introduction, right? This is gonna be like, I didn't sign up for Old Testament history at seminary, I know, right? But we've gotta do a bit of it. Nehemiah is one of the 12 books of the Old Testament that are in the genre of historical narrative, right? The first five books are called the Pentateuch, and, and, and what comes out of that is this big theme, of God is a holy and loving God who calls and shapes a people um, for himself, a people who will imitate him in holiness and in love. That's the big idea coming out of the first five books of the Bible. God loves people and God is absolutely holy, right? And he's working furiously to make a people who will imitate him, be image bearers of him, who are also holy and who also love people as we read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? Sometimes they do well, and we're like, yay! Sometimes, most often, they do terribly, and we're like, boo, right? But God remains the same, and He fulfills His promises to them again and again. And one of those promises is to make them a distinct people with a distinct land, and you're like, America! No, um, another one, right, that He will give them and that He will bless them with in that context. Exodus, tells us the very roundabout journey that they take from slavery to the land that God had promised them. And that is where we jump into the first of the 12 books of historical narrative. Let me just summarize Old Testament history for you in the next three minutes so that when we land in Nehemiah, we at least know where we are. The book of Joshua, which our posture of teaching, is determined that we're gonna teach soon. So brace yourselves, right? If you wanna uh, read something that's a lot like uh, uh, Game of Thrones, right? Joshua is gonna be helpful. Um, and Harlem's got the courage to teach it. I don't quite yet have that, but I'm growing in faith. But Joshua offers us details of what it looks like once this small nomadic group of people crossed the Jordan and began to settle in the land that God gave them. That's the big idea of Joshua. Judges shows us what people without a godly leader Look like, we don't have to look far today to know, right? In the world, right? There seems to be a dearth of leadership in the world. Um, Well, Judges shows us what it looks like without a godly leader to represent and lead the people and how the people of God did what they wanted and what it led to. If your mantra is follow your heart, read the book of Judges and change your mantra, right? Ruth is a fantastic interruption in the midst of that godlessness to show that God was still working in stories and that he was as committed as ever to building a people and he does that by profiling and highlighting and making the hero um, an outsider woman who isn't even born into the people of promise, amazing. First and Second Samuel, we've just spent a few months in them. They show the launch of Israel's monarchy, they focus on God's faithfulness to David in particular through the detail of his story and how God used that story. First and Second Kings tell us the patterns of the kings who followed David and how their rebellion led to the lack of flourishing in God's people and the separation of two kingdoms in Israel and Judah and how that made them vulnerable to the exile that sets the backdrop for the story of Nehemiah. First and Second Chronicles tells a similar story, but with the advantage of post-exilic hindsight, right? And so it's just written at a different time. It tells the same stories as First and Second Kings, but it tells it from another perspective in history. It's looking back with some hindsight. That brings us then to two books, which are actually written as a single one, but that we are teaching as two for the occasion of this teaching series, Ezra and Nehemiah two overlapping stories of the same era which begin right where the narrative of Second Chronicles ends. And so if you're going, where does my Bible piece together chronologically? When you get to the end of Second Chronicles, you should flip the page and start with Ezra, those in narrative history back into each other. And where it ends is not good, is not good. Friends, I hear a lot of people saying like, I think we live in one of the scariest times in redemptive history. And I'm like, for real? Um, there's some scary stuff in the world, make no mistake, right? But one of the cool things about going back and reading the history of God's people is they have been significantly scarier times, and God has prevailed His people, right? Where, where we find ourselves is, is that both Israel and Judah, these two split kingdoms that were supposed to live as one, have both been overrun and carried off into exile, uh, you think the, the empires of the world are scary today? Well, these guys find themselves at the collision point of three of the most brutal empires that have ever existed. The Assyrians, we thought they were bad, then they were overthrown by the Babylonians. We thought they were bad, and then they were overthrown by the Persians, right? And we made movies about Persian warriors, right? They, they weren't happy-go-lucky sort of peace-loving chaps, right? This was, this was a brutal empire, The Assyrians, they flatten the northern kingdom, Israel, in 722 BC, and they carry their people off into exile after murdering a large percentage of the population. Judah, where Jerusalem is, in the south, right? They manage to maintain independence for another 150 years, but then they get captured by the Babylonians in 587 BC. I don't see anyone writing down these dates. There is a test, um, and these dates do matter, right? They flatten Jerusalem, the Babylonians. The historical um, uh, recordings of this era, it is too brutal to even get your mind around. They defile and destroy the temple. They bring, they bring an end to the reigning monarchy in the holy city. And the surviving people of Jerusalem and its surrounds, known as Judah, get carried off to Babylon and they remain there in captivity, in slavery, right, um, for decades until the Persians come and overthrow the Babylonians. And in 538 BC, under an edict from Cyrus, you all know that guy, right? Uh, he allows some Jews to begin returning to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to re-inhabit the city. That's the end of Second Chronicles. Then what happens? Almost nothing. Nearly a 100 years pass before we enter the first verse of Nehemiah. <laughs> Lots of God's people, including Nehemiah, are still living in exile. And while the temple has been rebuilt at this stage, Jerusalem is still failing to function as a place of flourishing for God's people. They have a place, right? They've got the temple. They've got no walls. They've got no gates. They've got no order. They've got no structure. They've got no people. And so they've got the symbol of God's blessing, but they still feel a lot like they're living under a curse. All right, everyone up to speed? You're like, brilliant, I don't need to read the Old Testament. No, now you can. And you can understand exactly what's going on in some of those long narratives. How do you interpret the rest of the Old Testament? Well, the other layer to this, right, is all the while in, t- in this turbulent history, God has been sending prophets, and it's their writings that make up the most of the rest of the New Testament. And so if you want to understand the life and the writings of Jeremiah, has anyone ever read Jeremiah and gone like, this dude needs counseling? Right? You read Lamentations, you're like, we have a counseling center right upstairs. Right? Not everything can be that bad. This is the context in which those were written. Everything was terrible. right? And it's this constant refrain though, return to God, you've walked away from him, but you can return and if you will, right? if you will, he will bless you and give you a land and a people again, but if you won't, you will continue to live in exile. Right? The warning has been you'll be carried away. Now it's happened and you'll stay there unless you return. But even then, listen, this is the refrain of the Old Testament. Even then, God won't abandon his people. He's forming them. He's keeping them. He's calling them. He's shaping them, even in the midst of the darkest days. Okay, everyone okay? Nehemiah 1 verse 1, right. I'll read the whole of this short section then come back and make some brief observations. Verse one The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, during the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem, and the Jewish remnant that had survived. The exile. Now, you all understand that sentence now, right? Okay, they've been carried away. Now, under Persian rule, right, under Cyrus, some of them have been allowed to return, but Nehemiah's still living in exile, right, with this Persian king, and see, so he says, how's it going in Jerusalem? Like 100 years ago, we were allowed to return. Is it, is it crushing? Is it awesome, right? Tell me about it. Is it the land of milk and honey? How's it going? They said to me, the remnants in the province, this people that God has kept for himself, who survived the exile, are in great trouble and disgrace. It's not going well. The temple's built, but the place is a shambles. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down. Its gates have been burned. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of the heavens. Let's just pray. Father God, why don't you just help us? This could easily just be an abstract story removed from us. But without injecting ourselves into the text, Father, we don't want to do that. We do want to connect ourselves to this ancient story, this ancient narrative. And we want to see how you, the same God who kept a remnant in the midst of a very difficult season for your people, is still keeping a remnant today. You're still keeping your people. You're still faithful. You're still good. You're still working. You're still sending. You're still calling. You're still preserving. You're still blessing. You're still teaching. You're still calling to repentance through your Holy Spirit. Won't you help us to see that our lives, as part of this great ongoing drama, our lives matter? Help us to see that today, in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, let's just walk through it, old-fashioned Bible study. Three observations, and I'm out of you here. Verse one: The words of Nehemiah, son of Heckalai. You're like, really, you're going to stop there? Well, we can, right? I love how the scriptures show us that God involves Himself in the lives of very real, actual people. It doesn't start, right, in a long, long ago in a land very far away, right? That sets us up for fantasy. It says, no, no, this is an actual person in an actual time rooted to an actual. History. His name is Nehemiah, and if that isn't enough for you, he's son of Hekeliah. You go, oh, of course, Hekeliah's boy, All right? I remember him. This was so that the oral tradition passed down could root Nehemiah's story and God's story of Nehemiah in an actual history. Now, Nehemiah's name means Yahweh has comforted. Now it's so grand to live in cultures where names mean something, right? I'm called Ross, what does it mean? It means Ross, right? Or if you're at Starbucks, it means Russ. Um, But that's just, uh, because that's what they always write about Russ. I'm like, Ross, Ross, right? Four O's, Uh, let's get the American village uh, out the way, right? Um, But Nehemiah's name means Yahweh has comforted. Imagine looking at your child and going like, God has comforted through me. That kid's gonna have some ego issues, right? Um, but this ends up being a major theme of this book and a major theme of this part of redemptive history. God is a comforter who comforts us in our time of distress and discouragement. Why? So that we in turn can go on to encourage others, Second Corinthians uh, tells us. In the midst of what looks like God's people's bleakest seasons, Yahweh is still working, still providing still speaking, still comforting. Now that sounds quite lofty, right? Ooh, that sets Nehemiah apart from us. No, but look at how earthy the scriptures are. While Nehemiah has a lofty name, he is the son of a very real earthy man, Hecaliah, someone we know nothing about, right? And so we know that he would have been connected to a very ordinary, very real family, who I'm sure have all sorts of foibles and irritations, just like yours. I'm sure Nehemiah rolled his eyes on many occasions as Hakalaya got older, right, and didn't know how to work the modern technology of his day. These are real people in a real context. And what is he doing? Well, next week, the text is gonna tell us that Nehemiah has a job, and it's a strange job. He's cupbearer to the king. Now, some of you might go, he was a wine taster for a living? That is the coolest job in the whole world, but it was actually a very risky and very unglamorous job. He was checking every meal that came to the king to see if it had been poisoned. And so think about it for a second. Nehemiah, every day, takes a very big personal risk in the service of a pretty brutal dictator. That is a terrible job. That's harder and more compromised than working at Apple or for the AISD, and yet God is still going to use him, right? You might go, my job is so compromised. I wish God would call me to something significant. Oh, like protecting the life of the world's most brutal dictator? That's Nehemiah's job, and yet God still uses him. Right? He isn't religiously qualified, he isn't in the priesthood, he isn't that impressive in any way, he's just a dude with a job, a terrible job, and yet he responds to God and his name gets recorded in the unfolding redemptive uh, work of God in the world. Isn't that astonishing? Friends, your life can matter. Your routine can matter. You're back to school, you're back to the grind, right? And so, so many of us are questioning all of our life decisions this week because it's like school and target and school and target and then school and then wine and then, you know, again, right? And we're just like, what on earth? Does any of this matter? Yes, it does. If God's work in the life of the cupbearer to the king, could matter, right? your work in the life of the little you know, kings and queens that, that live in your house who look like you, um, where you feel like you're the cupbearer to them, they can matter too as well, right? Let's move on, second part. of the, Your kids are amazing, they're incredible. Right. I've met them, they're astonishing. Jesus loves them, so do I. You're doing great, All right? During the month of Just live, in the 20th year. Now when we read that, do you have an idea of where we are in history? No, right, because we call things different things, right? When I was in the fortress city of Susa, Han and I, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. Again, just such ordinary details. They sound extravagant because they're from a different culture, but these are very ordinary recordings, right? They will help us so much later in the text to see how God moves slowly over a period of time and then suddenly all at once right we read the condensed version but this story is actually going to take quite a long time there will be long periods of relative silence in Nehemiah's life you're going to read 13 chapters it's going to be action packed but unless you understand these dates you don't understand that this takes place over a very long period of time lots of just ordinary days of just getting through his to do list. It's good. Also, good, right? King didn't die today, successful day, right? Does my life mean anything? Just lots of working against the enemies of God and these difficult things with opposition that would have just been so frustrating, but he just gets through. The month of Chislev would place this in late November the best time of the year, right? Everyone knows, or maybe early December. And it says it's the 20th year. Now, we're not sure if this is the 20th year of Nehemiah's service to the king or the 20th year of the king's reign. That's the most likely. If that's the case, and I know many of you are dying to know, that would place this narrative in probably the first week of December in 446 BC. But the scriptures are rooting us in an actual time. Remember that date. And where is he? He's in Susa which was the winter retreat palace of the king, which again sounds quite extravagant. I mean, the king needs some retreat time after all that brutal dictatoring, right? And he takes Nehemiah with him. But imagine how meaningless this felt for Nehemiah. Now I've got to go test your food while you're on vacay and I've still got to work? And yet God's still working. God's still calling, God's still doing something. What Nehemiah asks is, how's it going in Jerusalem? It's been a century, right? It's been so long. Since people were allowed to return, is the temple built? I heard Ezra went down there, right? Are the people just worshiping? Is it gangbusters? Is it revival? Are the people flourishing? And they said to me, verse three, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. It's not going well. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down. Now without a wall, an ancient city had no defenses, right? And so they could just be overrun. Its gates have been burned. Without gates, you didn't have safe places for trade and for commerce and for industry and for meeting and for safe passage. The the, the city was defenceless. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heavens. Okay, three observations, very very quickly. Um, and then you guys can get to target, right? Because I put that in your brain. You're like, oh, my kid has so many things due for tomorrow that I've only just remembered this morning and I better bail them out because they can't possibly fail. All right, first one, your kids are great, right? Now um, they're doing super well. First observation, God is faithful. God is faithful in overseeing the details of our lives. One of the big themes of Nehemiah will be the sovereignty of God. Now, I know when I say that big theological word, sovereignty, some of you get the heebie-jeebies a little bit, right? Because you don't like the thought of some kind of master controller. You don't like the thought of a baked-in fate, right? We, we, We love the idea of our total free agency in the world. But as we read the stories of God, what we see is him injecting himself into those stories all the time and shaping things. Now, the mechanisms of that are a mystery, right? It's a mystery. I don't know how he does that, across time and space. And yes, he does leave us to our own responsibility in seasons and at times, and we're responsible for the things we do. Yes and amen. It's a mystery of God. We don't understand it. But what we can see in hindsight is God working, both in the macro details of redemptive history, but also in the small details of the life of someone like Nehemiah and those around him and like you today. Just look quickly at what is referenced as important detail about Nehemiah. God will use Each one of these elements, God has overseen who he is. He's the son of Hakaliah, he's the brother of Hananiah. Why is that important? Well, it gives him access to information about Jerusalem that that makes him wanna move there, right? It tells us when he lives in the month of Chislev in the 20th year of the king's reign, which places him in a particularly important junction history. It means Nehemiah comes to this point in his life at the exact moment that Judah needs a leader, Right, that Jerusalem needs to be rebuilt, it's not by accident. God's been shaping it and, and bringing it together. Where? well, he lives in proximate re, relation, proximity relationally and geographically to the most powerful king in the world. He couldn't have orchestrated that himself. It had to be gifted to him. And what does he do? He's the cupbearer to the king. He's one of the few people in that entire world who gets access to Octazerxes. One of the very, very few. Why? By God's good hand. Because God was orchestrating the details of his life for his own redemptive purposes. Stop for a second. Have you stopped to consider that in the mystery of the sovereignty of God, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, that in the same way that he was sovereignly orchestrating the details of Nehemiah's life, that perhaps he is faithfully Working through who you are, when you live, where you live, and what you do. Why do you work at Dell in this crazy boom town in 2022? By God's sovereign hand, right? He's orchestrating things. Now listen, for some of you, God's sovereignty over those sorts of details sounds daunting and fatalistic. We, We don't like that. But it's actually pastorally incredibly helpful and liberating if you stop to think about it. Uh, Some of my own dysfunction happens in the space. It causes some of my anxiety. I tend, honestly, to envy and covet other lives. I spend a lot of my time looking over other people's fences. Not literally, don't call the police, right? Um, I don't look over my neighbor's fence, but over the fences of their lives, right? And so I'm a nightmare to travel with because wherever I go, I think, I should live here, right? doesn't matter where I go. I find myself looking in shop windows at real estate prices and going like, I think I could make this work, right? I should live here because this life looks awesome. Because on vacation, every life looks awesome and every place looks awesome. I spent the last week, by God's grace, in London um, visiting my brother who I hadn't seen in five years. It was a wonderful time. But I kept walking around London going, I should live here. Right, now, now I think about that with every single place, but I thought about it a lot in London. I was walking around going like, Austin is stupid. It's so hot and there's no cricket in the commons and we don't have an underground. We don't have a West End. We don't have a St. Paul's. We meet in an office park. We could, should be meeting in St. Paul's, right? We don't have a South Bank. We don't even have a Leicester Square and we should have one. I've been here for five years now. They should name something um, after this family of origin, right? But when I think like this, listen, It can lead to a constant state of discontent, thinking that another life for me would somehow be better. And then I have to stop and remember God orchestrated this. I was with some friends last night, again, by God's grace, he's brought this community of of South Africans together, and we were together last night all telling the stories of how we came to be in Texas, right, in 2022. And I was actually just overwhelmed because I remember how God called us here. And how he oversaw all of the details and how he moved and how he made a way for for us to be in this flaming hot car dependent city which watches the wrong kind of football, right? But we're here and we're here by God's good hand. He orchestrated it and I love thinking about that. This knowledge, God's sovereignty, when rightly thought about, doesn't lead me to throw my hands up in fatalistic defeat. It leads me to throw my hands up in worship and to say, wow, God, God, what an adventure you have me on. Look at how you've brought me. Look at where you've made me. Look at the family that I'm in with the story that I have. In my case, with the totally non-transferable skill set that I possess. And you put me in this place at this time. Wow, God, what do you have for me to do next? Do you see how that brings a sense of adventure and mission to everything? Everything. Now the school run or your mundane commute or your difficult job, all of those things, while they can still seem mundane and difficult, now have a sense of God's adventure. Oh, he's telling a story through me. This is brilliant. What part of the story do you wanna tell through me today? Friends, most of the book of Nehemiah is his personal journal. That's how it came to be recorded. He wrote down, today I did this, and today I did this detailing what he thought were very ordinary things in the midst of his life, but a life in which God was using him. If your journal were to be read in the heavenlies with the perspective of eternity, it would be full of the details of God's wise kindness towards you, putting you where you need to be. Friends, let me just say this. If he isn't calling you somewhere else, I'm open to that possibility. We send people from this place all the time. If he's calling you somewhere else, go with wind in your sails and go for it, right? But if he isn't calling you somewhere else, then be fully where you are. (laughs) Content in the sovereign hand of the Lord, which is upon you just like it was upon Nehemiah. Second one, nearly there. God is faithful. And he's faithful in protecting a remnant people for himself. I love this word in verse three, the remnant of Jerusalem. It's a repeated biblical theme, actually. It's been a bit hijacked by some particular focuses of eschatology and I don't wanna get into that. But for me, it's an actual posture of God's faithful people who stay the course even in the midst of difficulty, suffering, and persecution. A group of people who are set apart from the people around them. It's the ones who keep going In some ways, it's the major theme of the New Testament epistles and eschatological writings. What's the theme of of the New Testament epistles, right? Some will fall away, but God keeps a remnant. Be part of the remnant. Stay holy, don't bow to idols. That's the New Testament summarized for you this morning. You're welcome, you've had the whole of the scriptures, right, summarized in redemptive history for you this morning. Let me just speak to this for a second. Let me just be your pastor for a sec, if you don't mind. And I know I'm your pastor with an accent who's from another place, but sometimes that's an advantage. Sometimes a disadvantage, to be sure. You know, we revisit Starbucks ordering. Um, But sometimes it's an advantage because I do think I'm able, by God's grace, because of who he made me and my story, to see some things a little bit differently. I hear a lot of nervousness around the changes that are taking place regarding the church's place in American society and civil life, I get it, right, I get it. We are definitely living in a changing season and I know that it feels peculiar and frightening for many, right, I get it, I understand it but here's what I think God might use that for as a very good thing. I think God is actually purifying the church, particularly in the West and returning us to the state of being a remnant people. Aliens, sojourners, those not at home in the world, the peculiar people called for his own particular purposes. And as we do that, we aren't stepping outside of redemptive history, we're actually taking our place back in redemptive history. You know that if you study church history, For the vast majority, in fact, if you go all the way back through redemptive history, look at the people of Israel, and then you follow it all the way through Christ, all the way through the New Testament, and all the way through Christian history that's followed for the last 2000 years. You know what you see? God's people, when they are faithful, they exist as a religious fringe element in a hostile culture. Whenever the church has flourished, that's been the context. I've been reading a lot about the history of ethics and morality, because I don't really have a life, right? No transferable skills. So so I've been reading a lot about this in major civilizations throughout history, and the Judeo-Christian people always stand out. You know how they stand out? There's a few marked ways. They stand out in their commitment to monotheism and a refusal to worship idols in cultures that make gods out of everything. They say, no, there's one God. That's where the Judeo-Christian people stand out as exiles, as a remnant, right? You know where they stand out? They stand out in the imago Dei view of all people. They say every person, every person, regardless of age, gender, race, sexuality, you know, influence, affluence, giftedness, nation is made in the image and likeness of God and is worthy of dignity and respect and protection. Christians stand out in cultures that are utilitarian with people. Christians stand out and say, no, 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 people are not to be used, they are to be loved, right? This is how we're supposed to be distinct. Thirdly, they show a care and radical hospitality for the poor, the sick, and the marginalized. Why? Because they believe in the Imago day. You look where churches have flourished through the last 2,000 years. They've been in hostile cultures, and they've been at the forefront of care for the poor. They've said, government won't do it, we will, because we have a different set of views, Friends, I'm trying to call us back to being our rebellious selves. Wouldn't church feel more exciting if you were part of the remnant people of God? Resident aliens who get to be part of this culture and experience its goodness and its blessing, but also push against it? A blessed nuisance, a stone in the shoe of government. That is how churches are supposed to exist. We need them because they care for the poor and no one else will, right? But they won't bow to our idols. They refuse to do it. Oh, now church is exciting. You wanna be part of a rebel movement? You're welcome, you're in it. We just forgot how to do it. We forgot how to do it. Fourth one. Gosh, I'm excited about this stuff. Nerd stuff, right? They had a distinct ethic and morality, especially as it pertains to sex and family. When cultures, not just ours, but when cultures throughout history have got very confused on sex gender sexuality and ethic around family units christians stood out and said no 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 christ's teachings on this are so clear and they pursued holiness you know how they pursued holiness not by trying to change legislation necessarily but by living in holy pockets of community that flourishes so that the rest of the community went like hey there's one community where family units are really working maybe they're onto something maybe they're onto something Next one, they had an eschatological view of resurrection. What what that means is Christians throughout the ages have believed, you can kill me, Jesus will raise me from the dead, so do your darndest. Which meant that they flourish even when they're persecuted, right? And then lastly, they had a willingness to exist as social outsiders. They didn't crave the acceptance of the culture. They were prepared to live on the fringe. That's when the church flourishes. God's inviting us back into it. Will you join us? I'm an immigrant and love this country, so I'm here. right? But as I arrived at uh, our very small airport, because um, when you've been at Heathrow, you realize, oh, our whole airport fits in one small section of terminal three, right? (laughs) And there's five um, at Heathrow. And so it's good for our souls because we tend to think with the sense of the universe, right? And so you arrive back, you go like, oh, this is like a little rinky-dink town, I like it, right? It's cool, this isn't traffic, you haven't seen traffic. (laughs) Um, And so I arrive at the airport and you know what I have to do? I'm 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 an immigrant, I've got a green card, praise the Lord, right? And so I get to go stand in the American line, but I pull out what we call the green number, which is my green passport. It says South Africa on it. And as you do it, you just see security alerts going off um, in the agent's mind because you're supposed to hand over the, you know, the sanctified blue one. And then you hand over the green one, he's like, uh-oh, uh-oh, here, here comes trouble, right? What's gonna happen? And as he reaches for that, I also reach out a green card, which actually isn't green, it's pink. Um, and, I, and I take it out and I hand it over to him. And I watch his screen. And you know what pops up on the screen straight away? resident alien. And I always smile, because some people are offended by that term, I'm not. I think it describes my Christian identity. I'm resident in the United States, I'm gonna exist for her flourishing and for her good and for her well-being, I'm gonna be here, I'm gonna make it count, right? But I'm alien. I'm from somewhere else and I'm gonna go on to live somewhere else and I need to keep that distinction if I'm gonna be any good at living in this society. Welcome to the resident aliens, friends. Welcome to the remnant. We can be God's people, right? How does this challenge some of the ways that we assess what we're supposed to be like as a people and how successful we're currently being in that endeavor? As we look at the church globally today, we weren't always doing great, but neither was the remnant in Jerusalem. The temple had been built. They had all the fixings of religion, but the city was in disgrace and so was the reputation of God as a result. But he was still up to something with a small group of people. Friends, oh, I need to speed up. I've gone too long again today. I sometimes get discouraged by the church. And it's complex because it pays my salary. <laughs> but I sometimes get discouraged by the reputation of God's people in the world. And I'm not actually saying our local church. I'm actually tremendously encouraged by the state of the Austin Stone at the moment. Praise God, you've been so kind to us, right? But when I look at the reputation of God's people in the world, particularly in the West, I can get discouraged. But I have to remember that God is committed to keeping a remnant, And that even when we look beat up, backwards, rebellious or defeated, he's still working. But listen, friends, we have to change our posture. He isn't working to create or to defend a dominant empire. He is working to build a holy remnant church that will knock down the gates of hell, to be sure, but not through the brute force of the day, but through a holy humility. And a commitment to being alien. Part of what makes Nehemiah so useful to the kingdom purposes of God is that he refuses to adopt a them posture to the beaten up people of God. You notice that? He doesn't say, they lie in ruins. Ah, oh, they're disgusting. What is wrong with them? What a disgrace. I'm gonna blog about them, right? No, he's deeply moved. He's deeply troubled. He doesn't turn that energy into bitterness and judgment. He turns into sorrow and lament. And that's our last point today. God is faithful. And so we ought to be prayerful. Look at how Nehemiah responds to the bad news of the conditions of God's remnant people. He prays. He mourns. He fasts. How does he do it? He does it slowly. He sits and he takes his time. He doesn't rush through it. Do you know how much time passes before he gets an opportunity to speak to the king? Four months. Four months he prays about this. He just says a number of days. When he says a number of days, he means 120 days. There's a period of four months between the start of his prayer and God answering it with an opportunity to do anything about it. When was the last time you prayed earnestly for something for four months? Before he saw anything happen. Keep going. Keep going. Secondly, he prays humbly. He fasts and he mourns. Fasting isn't an attempt to show God our religious power. Oh, I'm fasting. Now God must surely hear me. No, it's the opposite. It's a posture of weakness, right? It's saying, oh God, I'm so dependent on you. Even food, I I need everything from you. And he mourns. He has has nothing to do with Jerusalem's current state. Nehemiah could have rightly said, well, that's not my fault. That wasn't me. That's hundreds of years of redemptive history. It had nothing to do with me. What does he do? No, he mourns because it's broken. This sadness, this mourning, right? He he doesn't depersonalize it to make him feel better. He owns it so that he can take it to God. And then he does that hopefully. He, he, He prays to who? The God of heaven. This is in the Hebrew a way of saying to the sovereign God, to the one of power. The God of heaven is the one who displays his power. There's still hope even in his mourning. Why? He's praying to the God of heaven and there's nothing that the God of heaven cannot do. This is such a posture of faith in the face of bad news. Let's close this. How do you respond when the news of God's people is bad? What do you turn to? I confess that I'm more likely to turn to anger, followed by defeat, self-pity, and then self-justification in some sort of attempt to place blame rather than to humbly cry out for help. But I love, I love Psalm 112. Speaking of this remnant, it says, the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. Hey, friends, listen. Being faithful doesn't make you exempt from bad news. But being faithful means that you aren't afraid when it comes. Why? His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. This is what it looks like to have Nehemiah like faith in the face of bad news. Faith isn't some kind of denialism, it's not just optimism, oh, it's not that bad. No, it's bad but I trust in the God of heaven, right? It's not just bluster that attempts to diminish the impact or detail or severity. In faith, Nehemiah weeps and mourns and fasts, but his trajectory is Godward, all before the God of the heavens. His heart is firm, even when it is broken. (laughs) He trusts in the Lord, even though he has lost trust in the work of men. Okay, remember memento? The movie I told you not to watch, right? But that was awesome. Linkin Park, Frosted Tips. Remember it? Okay, put yourself back in 2000. Anything's possible. The world's ending. It's incredible. And I said, you have to look backward and forward in order to get a full perspective. Well, we've looked back at what led up to Nehemiah, but what does Nehemiah point us to? Points us to something. Nearly 500 years after Nehemiah, another one will receive bad news about the state of Jerusalem but he won't hear it from afar, he'll see it with his own eyes and he will declare Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Our King Jesus walks into Jerusalem himself as it sits in despair. He too weeps and mourns and fasts over the state of God's people. He too will make himself available to God for the saving of the remnant of Jerusalem. But he wouldn't, listen, come to build walls. Rather, he came to knock them down so that many may enter. Our good King Jesus came in the ongoing story of redemption so that you and I today don't need to go to Jerusalem to worship him and to experience his presence. And he right now orchestrates the details of your lives, ensuring that we can serve his purposes right here, right now, even in the midst of, of what often looks like a mess. Friends, I believe in the church. I believe in you and the spirit that dwells in you. We can be the remnant of faithfulness in our day and age so that one day, picture this, our humble journal entries might too be used in the ongoing telling of God's redemptive work in the world. will not you pray with me? wanna lead us Three different prayers today. So I'm gonna give you some prayer points, give you an opportunity to pray them yourself where you are. Firstly, I want not you take time to thank God that he has orchestrated the who, the when, the where, and the what of your lives. Why don't you just stop and acknowledge his work in bringing you here with the people you're with in this day and age with what you can do. I want not you just thank him? and ask him to use you, just spend a minute thanking God for your life and how he has orchestrated it. you just spend a minute just confessing and lamenting before God the ways that we have failed to be a faithful remnant. I'm sure you have frustrations with the people of God, with the church and its reputation. Take them to the Lord. Take them to the God of heaven. Don't depersonalize them. Confess, Father, we have failed to be the people you have called us to be. I'm part of that. and hope to the God of heaven won't you pray with me that God would make us into a faithful remnant that he would use us as a holy humble and hopeful group of people who aren't grasping for power but who are seeking faithful service Lord won't you make us that kind of people (laughs) Lord you're not done with us you're not done with the church you're working you're moving. I believe it. I see it in me and us in the millions of gatherings around the world today. You're making a remnant people. Oh, Lord, do your work. Sanctify us. Humble us. Empower us by your Holy Spirit. I pray that our, our position that we long for would not be one of dominance, but rather one of alien service. Make us a remnant. Your holy, humble people, make us small group of rebels that you have always called us to be and empower us by your Holy Spirit to be that sort of people in Jesus' name.